please, Gavin, the Soviet Union could have sneezed and landed 100,000 troops in England. Yes. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you invaded a small town in the middle of Colorado with no strategic value whatsoever, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 415, beautiful downtown Calumet edition of the show. It's a what-the-hell movie night, and we're talking Red Dawn. Stay tuned. What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Jed's Bait Tackle and Paramilitary Supply. Has your fly speck of a town at the ass end of nowhere been invaded by the forces of godless communism? Are you and your high school buddies fleeing to the mountains to avoid capture and or indoctrination? Why not stock up on all the things you'll need at Jed's? From cans of Vienna sausages to two blanched anti-tank munitions, you can find it at Jed's. Sleeping bags, plate more mines, fishing rods, man portable air defense missiles, and so much more, all right here at Jed's. Buy now and pay after the forces of capitalism have driven the dirty commies into the sea. When World War III kicks off right there in East Frogfort, Jed's bait, tackle, and paramilitary supply has got you covered. This is the emergency broadcast system. We are under attack by conventional forces of the Russian army. It is believed the lead waves were disguised as commercial charter flights. Communications have broken down other parts of the country. Large areas of the Midwest may have been overrun. I know who all of you are. They're looking for you. You're 40 miles behind enemy lines. I just want to go home. I took a lot of people away. Where's my dad, Mr. Eckert? What if I love somebody, Andy? I'm gonna die before it happens. George! They're gonna kill us! Solve us! So why should we be different? Because we live here! for a bunch of kids, huh? Mama'd be real proud. Like most red-blooded little redneck boys of the 1970s, I spent many a summer afternoon with my cousins engaged in the valiant defense of my granny's property from the ravening Nazi hordes. Thank you for your service. We called it playing war. I doubt kids today play war like we played war. I guess one of the big differences is Nazis aren't the bad guys like they used to be. I mean, we don't even call Nazis Nazi anymore. Now we just sort of say that they're... Uh, Nazi adjacent. Right. So. Many of them are family members. I have probably at least three or four cousins who are at least Nazi adjacent, if not full-on Proud Boys. But, you know, they don't call themselves that, of course. They, they call themselves real Americans. The other reason kids today don't play war like we played war is that toy guns aren't allowed anymore. The guns they give you are real guns? Oh yeah, the real ones are fine, but the plastic ones, apparently, th those are bad for kids. 
Also, video games have replaced dirt clawed hand grenades and water balloon mortars. I'm gonna play Call of Duty in real life. I'm also gonna be playing Call of Duty in this movie theater. Now, I may be a fat old man, but I will never see how sitting inside, glued to a TV, shooting digital representations of people could ever compare to making your least popular cousin, Tom, cry in real life because you beamed him in the brain pan with a dirt-clawed hand grenade. And then you hear his wailing cry rise up over the holler as an adult came running to see what us little heathens had done this time, only to have us look him dead-ass in the eye and with total sincerity say, Oh, I'm sorry, Mom. It was an accident. But it was never an accident. You saw your chance and you took it and you sent an MLB line drive right at Tom's big ass noggin and everybody knew. And the only reason you didn't get in major trouble is because all the adults, they kind of hated Tom too. Man, those are some good times. And it's a real shame because those long summer days of throwing stuff at each other and making machine gun noises weren't just harmless fun. I mean, if you don't count the brutal bullying of your least popular cousin, but they were also vital training should the unthinkable ever happen. And before someone's serious, I got hurt. Now, if someone gets hurt, you spray some Bactine on the bone as it juts out of the skin, and it'll be fine. I mean, like really bad shit. Like godless communists suddenly, against all logic, launching a massive airborne invasion of the continental United States. Well, I find that highly unlikely. But okay, maybe. Which brings us to this week's topic. That's right, it's a what the hell movie night. Movie night! <laughs> Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. To get ourselves a treat. Dude, what are we watching? Oh, pod friends. This week, we're talking about 1984's jingoistic GOP mill prop fantasy. Red Dawn, motherfucker. Oh, yeah, and I do mean the 1984 version, which for all its janky-ass writing and Reagan-Eric masturbatory schlock is uh, still exponentially better than the remake, which says something about how truly terrible that dog shit of a movie was. Now... The top line summary in IMDb reads thus, quote, From out of the sky, Soviet, Nicaraguan, and Cuban forces begin landing on the football field of a Colorado high school. In a few seconds, the paratroopers have attacked the school and sent a group of teenagers fleeing into the mountains. Armed only with hunting rifles, pistols, bows, and arrows, the teens struggle to survive the bitter winter and the Soviet KGB patrols hunting for them. Eventually, trouble arises when they kill a group of Soviet soldiers on patrol in the highlands. Soon, they will wage their own guerrilla warfare against the invading Soviet troops under the banner, Wolverines." Unquote. Now, the first question you should be asking yourself is, How's that even possible? To which I say it wasn't, but we will come back to that in a couple of minutes. The next question you should be asking yourself is, Okay. Okay, who is responsible for this? And that would be director John Milius, 
who, according to Wikipedia, quote, attempted to join the Marine Corps and volunteer for Vietnam service in the late 1960s, but was rejected due to a chronic and sometimes disabling case of mild asthma. Mm -hmm. I'd have given anything to be a Marine, says Milius. As a surfer, I'd spent a lot of time hanging out with Marines off Pendleton, and I had a, every intention of joining up. I was devastated. I felt like I'd been rejected as a human being. It was totally demoralizing, he said later. I missed going to my war. It probably caused me to be obsessed with war ever since, unquote. So, instead of going to war, dying like the poor kids did, John had to settle for being a Hollywood director. It must be very hard for you. His uh, writing credits include such touching humanitarian epics as Dirty Harry and Judge Roy Bean. Then he moved behind the camera. Now, he really wanted to make a movie about America's favorite anti-communist Joe McCarthy, but that didn't pan out, so he did a screenplay for Apocalypse Now, which Francis Ford Coppola eventually rewrote. Milius said, quote, He wanted to ruin it, liberalize it, and turn it into hair, unquote. Lest you think that I, a libtard podcast host, is cherry-picking information about John Milius. Dude, he totally is. Allow me to read a quote by John Milius, which I plucked from Coffee or Die, which is a blog written by the Black Rifle Coffee Company, which is a coffee company for people whose dick gets hard when they see a photograph of an AR-15. And their copywriters quoted Milius on co when he said, quote, I'm a militarist, an extreme patriot at times. I believe in all that rugged individualism hogwash, unquote. Milius would eventually go on to direct Conan the Barbarian in 1982, which made Arnold Schwarzenegger Arnold's, and laid the groundwork for Milius to write and direct Red Dawn, which, as you can see, was right in his avoir. The script was primarily penned by a guy named Kevin Reynolds, who, would also, who also wrote Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and Waterworld. And while those were not great movies, they were not stag films for gun, gun humpers. So I can't say that Reynolds was a propagandist per se. The script he wrote was top-heavy with a sort of imagery and pathos for America that was. That would have Lenny Riefenstahl get squishy in her down below. Is that really necessary? No, but I like to think of myself as weaving a vivid tapestry of imagery through the application of, uh, frankly, off-putting metaphors. Now, if you need more information on the political bent of this movie, allow me to deliver this little nugget from Wikipedia. Quote, the chieftains at MGM got a better idea. Instead of making a poignant little anti-war movie, why not make Teen Rambo and turn the project over to John Milius, a genial filmmaker who loved war movies. The idea was especially popular with a member of the MGM Board of Director, General Alexander Haig, the former Nixon White House Chief of Staff, who was fresh off a gig in the Reagan White House that he was asked to leave because Haig was considered too bellicose and war-happy for the Reagan White House. Haig yearned to supervise this movie personally so he could develop a film career. Milius said about rewriting the script, he and Haig devised a backstory in which the circumstances of the invasion would occur. This was reportedly based on Hitler's proposed plans to invade the U.S. during World War II. 
Haig took Milius under his wing, bringing him to the Hudson Institute, a conservative think tank founded by Herman Kahn, to develop plausible scenarios. Milius saw the history as a third world liberation, liberation struggle in reverse. Haig introduced Nicaragua and suggested, with the collapse of NATO, a left-wing Mexican government would participate in the Soviet invasion, effectively splitting the USA in half. And even Milius was taken aback by Haig's approach to the project. This is going to end up as a jingoistic flag-waving movie, Milius fretted, unquote. Think about the movie that Milius wrote, directed, and made final cuts on the edit, edit to before it was released to theaters. How fucking bad Al Haig's ideas must have been to make Milius think that the movie would be too jingoistic. So it was with a budget of $15 million, Milius set his primary filming location in Las Vegas. Ah, Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! No, 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 not that Las Vegas, the, the, the other one. The, the one in New Mexico. New Mexico? Yeah, located in the northeastern corner of the state, kind of close to Colorado border. The town was a stand-in for fictional Calumet, Colorado. And that place actually has a long history in film going all the way back to the early days of silent westerns. Many a Tom Mix movie was shot there. Who the hell is that? Oh, look it up on Wikipedia. When it came time for casting, Milius went with up-and-coming young Hollywood in some of, if not their earliest, film roles. The lead was a very young Patrick Swayze in his first motion picture as Jed, the former high school football hero, now dead-ending around town, unable to move past his former glories to get on with his life. C. Thomas Howell, who broke out in E.T., was cast as Robert, the bloodthirsty, revenge-obsessed reckless one. Charlie Sheen, in his first major motion picture, was Jed's little brother, Maddie, who would follow Jed into anything. Jennifer Grey is cast as Tony, a girl... And Leah Thomas is Erica, the, the, the other girl. That's sexist. You're sexist. I didn't write the script, but these characters aren't passing any Bechdel test. Tony is there to fall in unrequited love with Powers Booth, the old man of the group who plays an Air Force F-15 pilot who's shot down and rescued by the teens. And Erica is basically there to look good next to Patrick Swayze. Both of them put a lot of heart into their roles, but all the heart in the world can't compensate for the shallow writing. I honestly have seen this movie about half a dozen times to this day. I can't tell you which one is which without looking at the credits. And finally, we have the bad guys. A guy named Vladik Scheibel plays the evil Russian general. He has a name, but it doesn't matter. Scheibel was a character actor who basically played Russians. He is balanced on the other side by Ron O'Neill, another veteran character actor who was cast as Colonel Ernesto Bella. Say what you will about Shyball, he actually was Russian. Ron O'Neill, not Cuban, nor any other flavor of Latin American unless Ireland is located in South America. Bela plays a war-weary form former revolutionary whose role in the movie is to wonder what all this fighting is for and whether any of it is really worth it. It, it, it wasn't... It... Um, there were a bunch of other actors in the movie, some big names, some not, but they weren't there for any other reason than to give some plausible reason for a bunch of teenagers to hate the enemy so much that they would become partisans. If you've already seen the movie, you know what comes next. If you haven't, well, I guess... Spoiler alert. The plot goes like this. In 
fictional 1984, America stands alone. Europe has apparently decided they just don't want to be in NATO anymore. Seems like a strange thing to do. Yeah, if you're looking for some sort of internal logic in this movie, I've got some bad news for you. And on top of that horrible case, Mexico has apparently toppled via some domino theory jack-off fantasy to a communist coup that stay, that came from out of, and I am not making this up, Nicaragua thing. An emboldened Soviet Union decides to invade the continental United States, along with, and again, I'm not making this up, the Cubans and the Nicaraguans. Now... I hear you thinking to yourself, because this is what everybody thinks to themselves. What about this nuclear launch thing? Well, in the movie logic, Powers Booth says that a couple of nukes were used, but then everybody just decided that was a bad idea or something, with the exception of China, which was apparently nuked until it glowed. This is the dumbest thing I ever heard. Oh, I haven't even got to the dumb part yet. And so, the Soviets, somehow managed to move something like a million troops, all their weapons, their aircraft, their ships, without anyone noticing the biggest troop movement since the Second World War via satellite, intelligence agencies, or like people in Miami just looking out a window all the way to Cuba and Nicaragua. And from there they will invade the United States. Imagine a free trip to Washington, D.C. Oh, no, why would the enemy want to do something like take the capital of the nation that they were invading or like the major cities on the east and west coast? Oh, no, 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 no. They're going to invade the middle of the country, dropping all over places like Colorado, New Mexico, Oklahoma, or Kansas. Not Texas. You'll notice they didn't. They didn't mention Texas because even in the fucked up logic of the movie, no one in their right mind would invade Texas. I'm not saying it's because no one would want Texas outside of Texans. I'm just saying no one would want Texas outside of Texans because the Soviets knew deep down inside that the key to controlling the U.S. mainland was to hold the prime high school football playing territories. I mean, forget sound military tactics like not being surrounded on both sides by an enemy of vastly superior numbers on their own soil. The plot demands that we have true American patriots who played high school football be involved. And you aren't going to get that if you invade Philadelphia. And also, you can't set it in Philadelphia because you really, really want your protagonist to be white people. Hey, man, white people. This is all, of course, on the big, on the macro scale. In the movie, we are dealing with the micro scale. Ergo, the fictional town of Calumet, Colorado, which is invaded by an undetermined, but probably battalion-level strength of Cubans and a smattering of Soviets. What makes Calumet so special that they need to drop battalion strengths on it? Well, it didn't have a military base. There were no major railroad junctions or even an interstate passing through. So we can rule out any actual military objectives, which leaves only one reason. High school football is a way of life. And so as this battalion of Cuban paratroopers land on the high school campus, they start shooting up the school including, and again, I'm not making this up, using a rocket-powered grenade to blow up a school bus 
for no reason whatsoever. Not only was it written for... Yup, teenagers. It was also written by them, apparently. And so in the carnage, the cool kids from the school all pile in to football star Jed's truck and make for the mountains, stopping only at the gas and go to load up on guns, ammo, and snacks. Over the course of the movie, they find out that their parents are being held in a re-education center at the local drive-in because, okay, sure, why not? And this forces them to become, with no training, equipment, or adult supervision, highly effective guerrilla partisans taking the war to the enemy. Well, th th they do eventually get some adult supervision. Like I said, Powers Booth just shows up, who apparently not only flew an F-15, but commanded an infantry company in Vietnam. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah, you didn't know that because I made that up. They never really explained how an Air Force fighter pilot suddenly became to possess a wealth of small company guerrilla tactical knowledge. I knew a number of fighter pilots when I was in the Air Force, and they had not a fucking clue on how to fight in ground combat. That's the whole reason they became pilots, so they could afford the dirty part of the war with people shooting at them from less than a mile below. And so, somehow, these children, using captured enemy weapons, which magically they learned how to operate, become the Wolverines, named for, you guessed it, the local high school football team. And the Wolverines go on to fight an incredibly effective guerrilla campaign right up until the time they're all shot to pieces by helicopters, which would have happened in any realistic scenario about 24 hours after the first time they took a shot at a Soviet troop. Why do you hate fun, Miller? Because fun is highly unrealistic. Back in the real world, the movie was the first to premiere with the new PG-13 rating. This was for violence, because you can show teenagers people being machine gunned, but you can't show them titties. And it would be a rather banal shoot em up if it weren't for the massive amount of fear-baiting bullshit that Millie has injected into every element. Here's the lead paragraph of the New York Times Review in 1984. Quote, To any sniveling lily livers who suppose that John Milius, having produced Uncommon Valor, directed Conan von Barbarian, and written Apocalypse Now, had already reached the pinnacle of movie-making machismo, a warning. Mr. Millius's Red Dawn is more rip-roaring than anything he's done before. Here is Mr. Milius at his most alarming, delivering a rootin' tootin' scenario for World War III, unquote. Somewhat later on, a University of Pittsburgh student named Haley Waltman wrote for a class called Rhetoric of the Cold War in 2017, quote, The audience of Red Dawn is the American people, but more specifically, the American people who are undecided about how to feel about our foreign policy. Red Dawn aims to eliminate the feelings of guilt in Americans who are on the fence and possibly worried about how our warfare affects the people of the Soviet Union and other communist territories. Merlius appeals to this audience through the representation of the enemy as savage. Robert L. Ivey says in an article, a strongly committed to the ideal of peace but simultaneously faced with the reality of war must believe that the fault of any such disruption of their ideals lies with others. He then goes on to explain the victimage rhetoric where a scapegoat is chosen as an antagonizing force. He can apply American politics at the time to this statement through Reagan's mantra, peace through strength, thus conveying the ideal that in order to establish peace, we must face the possibility of war. Red Dawn uses victimage rhetoric, exemplifying Soviets, the Cubans, and Nicaraguans as scapegoats for the U.S. citizens to blame for the cause of brutal war and the lack of peace. 
This film aims to instill fear that if you weren't on board with the Reagan administration and all the heavy-handed anti-communist policy, you could end up in a World War III situation and fear for your life, unquote. David Plotz wrote in Slate in 2008, quote, Milius' vision of the world is curiously, or perhaps presciently, congruent with that of modern Buchananite isolationists. World War III begins as an immigration problem. Mexico and the rest of Central America having fallen under communist control, Latino illegal aliens infiltrate and sabotage Midwestern Air Force bases. Pathetic old Europe betrays America and refuses to come to our aid. And the first thing the commies do when they seize Calumet is round up all the gun owners, relying on the Form 4473, a real-life ATF form for registering gun sales. Milius Pans from They Can Have My Gun When They Pry It From My Cold Dead Fingers bumper sticker to a Red Army soldier prying a gun from the cold dead hands of an American. In my memory, Red Dawn celebrated America and its virtues, but its guiding ideology is actually fascism. The only politician in Red Dawn, the mayor of Calumet, is a Quisling who rats out his neighbors for execution. His son, the student body president, turns out to be the traitorous Wolverine seeking immediate capitulation to the invaders and eventually leading the Soviets right to the band's hideout. Swayze takes command of the Wolverines by force, forbids a vote about whether to surrender, and demands that his fellow guerrillas obey him without question. The warrior code of Red Dawn is nihilistic. Glory and death are the same. There's no higher aim than to fight. It never imagines an America that is worth saving. We have corrupt institutions and cowardly politicians, unquote. And there are probably some of you right now rolling your eyes and saying, there goes Dave again. Go on and put on your Bernie Sanders mittens, you libtard. But I, I don't hate the movie because it's right-wing agitrop. I don't even hate the movie. But that's no, but what I do hate is the bad writing because the writers and directors think I, the audience, is stupid because the movie is stupid. When I saw it in the 80s at 15, I knew it was stupid because of the stupidity and because of that stupidity, it took all the drama out of the movie. When you watch a movie, you want to suspend your disbelief. Like, I know zombies aren't real. But it's fun to pretend that they could be real for the sake of the movie. But to accept this movie as in any way dramatic, I have to ignore how many things that could never fucking happen. And it is way more likely that the dead could rise from the grave and start eating brains than it was for the Soviet Union in 1984 to invade the goddamn United States. There were only 180,000 people in the Cuban military in 1984 and the Nicaraguan military only 125,000 and none of them were, were capable of the kind of things that you see in the movie that they present to us. And neither of them had tanks, tactical fighters or air transport in any meaningful number. Now, the Soviet Union had between 5 and 6 million troops, more than the United States, but they were garrisoned in Eastern Europe, which, you know, makes sense because that's where fucking Russia is. And the Soviet Union did have strategic military airlift, but it was designed to fight in Europe. It wasn't going to fly across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and that bullshit about fucking civilian planes doesn't fly either. And while, yes, the hypothetical invasion route from eastern Russia through Alaska was sideways mentioned in the movies, again, that would require the movement of 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of troops from Eastern Europe to Western Russia or vice versa. I could never figure out how that works over there without anyone noticing. And they're going to notice we had satellites in 1984. But none of that actually fucking matters because the second, the instant, the first fucking paratrooper magically landed on the continental United States, there would have been a massive world-ending nuclear exchange. Not a limited little war or anything like that, but fucking Armageddon. We had thousands of nuclear warheads for a fucking reason. The movie is illogical, and if you want to look for a logical movie on what would actually happen if in 1984 the Russians or the Soviets declared war on the United States, you're not looking for Red Dawn, you're looking for the day after. This time, ICBMs. Over 300 missiles inbound now. Either we fired first and they're going to try to hit what's left. But they fired first and we just got our missiles out of the ground in time. This is not an exercise. So there was never an instant in this movie when anyone with two brain cells to rub together could suspend their disbelief long enough to actually make it enjoyable. So naturally, fucking people loved it. It grossed $38 million on a $17 million budget. It took in $88 million on the first weekend. And while the industry's film reviewers were lukewarm at best, and these are all from Wikipedia, quote, Red Dawn received mixed reviews, uh, receiving a 52% rating on Rotten Tomatoes based on 27 reviews with an average 5.6 out of 10. The website's consensus reads, an appealing ensemble of young stars will have some audiences rooting for the Wolverines, but Red Dawn's self-seriousness can never conceal the silliness of its alarmist concept, unquote. And yes, some right-wing publication jizzed their genes. The National Review named it one of the 15 best conservative movies ever made. Reason Magazine wrote, quote, I'll take the Wolverines from Colorado over a small circle of friends from Harvard Square in any revolutionary situation I can imagine, unquote. But even among the people on the right, they couldn't help but notice but how dumb the movie was. Libertarian theorist Murray Rothbard argued the film was not so much pro-war as it is anti-state. One big problem with the picture is that there's no sense of successful guerrilla war that feeds on itself. In the real life, the ranks of the guerrillas would start to swell, and this would defeat the search and destroy concept. In Red Dawn, on the other hand, they're only the same half dozen teenagers, and the inevitable attrition makes the struggle seem hopeless when it need not be, unquote. Still, the movie was the 20th highest grossing film of 1984. It was nominated for no major awards, and the most notable feature of it as a film is how the cast went on to become some of the most popular and enduring actors of the 1980s. As a piece of pop culture, it is indelibly seared into the collective consciousness. To this day, people shout Wolverines at some minor accomplishment, though usually that minor accomplishment is not blowing up an armored vehicle. 
except in Ukraine where Wolverine's logo is painted on the side of destroyed Russian armor to this very day. Wolverine! And Hyatt Red Dawn been, been set in Kiev in 1984. Well, honestly, that would have made sense either because they, 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 they were all on the same side then. Like I said, I don't hate the movie. I've watched it too many times to hate it. I watched it again before this week's show. And I can still remember watching it with my friends when I was in the military where a good old-fashioned propaganda flick always went over well. And, hey, it's light years better than some of his contemporaries. I'm looking at you, Heartbreak Ridge. I'm looking at you. This is the AK-47 assault rifle, the preferred weapon of your enemy. And it makes a distinctive sound when fired at you. So remember it. Grenada? Really, Clint? Grenada? Watching it now, 40 years after it was created, and all that's come between then and now, I can see it for what it was. It's Hollywood capitalizing on Reagan's America. Well, we're waiting! Now, I'm not going to play the drop, because now you want it too much. But what stuck with me today is the message this movie sends to the worst people in America. You know, the ones, the dumb fucks in the tactical camo body armor, cock stroking the barrel of the AR-15 and imagine themselves as Wolverines. Only the evil enemy they want to fight is the actual United States. The all dream of someday leading a race war that will oust the godless communists, leading anyone who votes to the left of Ted Cruz out of this nation and installing a pure God-fearing Aryan nation that the founders intended. Problem is, as it always is, those people are fucking morons. They uh, missed the most important part of the movie. The one where everyone gets killed in about 20 seconds by airborne firepower, which is exactly how it would have happened if the Soviets had invaded in real life and they were fighting high school partisans and exactly how it would happen if Y'all-Qaeda decided to take on actual military troops in their own version of Civil War II redneck boogaloo. Reality sucks. I will say, however, as bad as 1984's Red Dawn is, it's infinitely better than that piece of shit remake, a movie whose premise is so thin and stupid that it makes the original Red Dawn look like a Von Clausewitz essay. That is it for the show this week. Look, I'm sorry if I've ruined anyone's childhood by panning this movie. I, I know I could be a real Grinch sometimes, but hey, it's Red Dawn. If this is your number one favorite movie from the 80s, you're actually probably doing federal time for your actions on January 6, 2020. Oh, hey, like important announcement. If you're one of our Patreon subscribers and somehow you're still listening, their system fucked up. So if you want to keep donating to this clusterfuck of a show, head on over to patreon.com slash what the hell podcast and check the status of your donation. I mean, if you don't, we don't blame you. But, you know, if, if that's the case, at least give us a rate and review so other people can listen to us and decide that they don't want to donate to the show either. Now, do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, he will be forced to come to your house, spray paint the network logo on your wall, and then stand on your roof with a microphone stand and shout, Seltzer Kings! And so for me, Dave, I'm a misanthropical breed. I have an insatiable need to feed Bledsoe, producer... Why do you make me do this? Yeah. Enamored of passion, life-sucking lust, you will never gain my trust. Where do you find these songs? Gavin and all the fictional freedom fighters on this show, we want to say, Vicious Mammal, the blood is my call, pound for pound, 
I'm the most vicious of all. Oh yeah, we searched long and hard, but we really did find a song about Wolverines. And we'll see you all next week. Were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions? The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. The first day of the planetary alignment.